Batter up, sports movie fans, and thanks a bunch for doing the Scoring at the Movies thing. This is our 21st episode and our fourth about baseball in our second in a row after that, Mr. Baseball two weeks ago. Does this constitute a home run now? I guess it does. Inside the park. I think we run. can all agree that, yeah, all four episodes individually are only singles at best, so <laughs> we've scored a run at this point, at least. It's a topic we'll definitely come back to again, because there's a lot of baseball movies, including some good ones like Eight Men Out we haven't covered. And warning, we spoil all of our sporty flicks we always have, and we surely always will. Both from the perspective of ruining the plot and ruining the movie for people who watch them? That's part of the point, yeah. yeah. I'm the reclusive boat rocker who would murder intruders with crowbars were I not a pacifist. Ryan Ellis, and here's the baseball ghost who's a guest in my corn, Chris DiGregorio. Good to be back, Ryan. It's It's been too long since we last recorded an it's episode. It's been so. one day. <laughs> we recorded yesterday, and it didn't work. The first time that's ever happened with Bev and me, or with Chris and me, where a recording simply wasn't there. I don't know why. Something technical went wrong. So an hour and 15 minutes down the drain. I like to think that the content was so incisive, so compelling that the audio file just collapsed onto itself <laughs> like a star that gets too dense and forms a black hole. Yeah, so we recorded a audio black hole yesterday, I guess you could say. So we'll see if we can recapture whatever magic we had there. <laughs> magic so, in the biggest air quotes possible. <laughs> First of all, let's talk about the beer. Yesterday was an eight-man-out choice you had. What's this one, though? Your backup beer. This is Wicked Awesome IPA from Nickelbrook. Because uh, they end up in Boston. They, okay, they, fair. It's an yeah. homage to that baseball game that's featured. James Earl Jones. Yeah. So just that. do that before dog we and start beer. talking. Dog without and the, a beer. Without the dog. <laughs> well, I've got two dogs right behind me, yeah. so that kind of fits, right? If you eat them, you're out of this house. <laughs> It's the opposite of if you build it, he will come. If you eat them, you will leave. <laughs> I like that. That's good. And I've got a rum with Diet Pepsi today. If you pour it, it will be rum. Indeed, indeed. I so can do this all day, Ryan. Before Just we get <laughs> any further into Field of Dreams, let's do something we haven't done in a while. Some runs, hits, and errors from two weeks ago, Mr. Baseball. Ken Takakura, who plays Uchiyama. You said he's five foot two ish, but he's really more like five foot eleven ish. Right. So he's definitely taller than me, shorter than you, which I guess I can understand from your standpoint. He seems like he's short, but he's really not that short by adult male standards. He's actually, I think, a little taller than the average. Yeah, I mean, five eleven is pretty tall, but like you said, he's shorter than me. Most people are, so most people strike me as being five foot two in general. I don't know how tall Selleck is. He must be a big guy. Six two ish at least. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so maybe just, even more. Just by comparison, then I guess I misinterpreted mm. how we. His name was Uchiyama, right? Uchiyama. Yeah. And also, I was saying that Tom Selleck bowls over the first baseman on that last play of the big game. Right. But it's really the pitcher. He picks up the bunt and tries to tag the base or Selleck. In the process, Selleck knocks him over illegally. So it wasn't the first baseman at all. It was the pitcher. It was just a good, hard baseball play, Ryan. Good, hard football play. <laughs> I still maintain okay, it was just illegal. Say, just say good, hard play. Well, omit the specific sport we're mm -hmm. referring to. All right, so today's podcast is Field of Dreams, and it was released by Universal nearly 30 years ago in May of 1989. The flick was a very nice success, made about $145 million adjusted for inflation, which made it 19th that year at the box office. Batman was number one, and Major League, which we covered last year, one of our other baseball movies, was 26th. And it also got 86% of critics and audiences, same number, 
on its side on Rotten Tomatoes. So pretty good scores. It was nominated for Best Picture, nominated for the screenplay, nominated for the music. I thought it was a great music score. This is the first time we've covered a movie that was nominated for Best Picture, 21 movies in. Some other movies have been nominated for yeah. Oscars and even won them. Paul Newman won Best Actor for Color of Money, for example. But here's the Best Picture nominee. And I think of our 21 movies, the best one so far. What about you? I think that's probably a fair statement. I have a soft spot for a lot of the movies we've talked about so far, in particular things like Tin Cup, another Kevin Costner movie that we did. I don't think this is a perfect movie, and we'll get into no. some reasons why, but from what it's trying to achieve and the way that the film is constructed, this might be yeah, the best that we've done. It's going to be an interesting experience talking, again, about <laughs> a good movie rather than one that has all kinds of flaws that we can rip into. It really rides that wave of fantasy. And it was, well, look at this right now. We'll talk about a lot of the lists it made, in fact. It was six in the fantasy category of the top 100 genres. It's Wonderful Life was on there. And Kevin Costner has compared yeah. the two movies. He says that Field of Dreams was his generation's, the 1989 era. It's Wonderful Life. And if you think about it, there's an awful lot of things. And other people undoubtedly would say that both movies are bullshit. But there's a ton of things, even if you're a fan, where if you really were to analyze and think, this is pretty stupid and absurd. There's religious elements in there. Ghosts are a picture in this movie and an angel in It's Wonderful Life. But if you like those movies, as I do, in both cases, then they work so well. I agree entirely. And you're right. This is right in that genre. And I just can't help but picture Jimmy Stewart in the Ray Kinsella role now, just in that climactic scene. You know, it's like, hey, 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 Dad, you, you want to have a catch? And then just lazily tossing the ball around in his 1920s. It's a Wonderful Life football uniform that he's wearing. It brings a tear to my eye just thinking about it. <laughs> no. No, no, James. All right, fine. Well, You've never passed up an opportunity to do an impression in your life, and you're giving up the opportunity to do... Well, I, I don't, I'm not crazy. I don't hear ghosts and voices and stuff. <laughs> Although, I guess he does in some movies, like in Harvey, where he hears an imaginary rabbit. Yeah, well, he's, he's an imaginary. He sees and hears things in more than one movie. It's a Wonderful Life. He's obviously hearing and seeing Clarence, right? He's speaking to an Well, angel. when Clarence is on the earth, he's really there. Everyone else acknowledges his presence. That's true, but it's also very much like Christmas Carol kind of experience. He's oh, had, definitely, right? yeah. And Harvey, like you said, he's hallucinating a six-foot-tall rabbit, mm -hmm. and that's funnily enough... His doctor sees it in that movie, though, too. In every instance, there's always things that imply that, okay, you're not actually crazy, Jimmy Stewart. Mm. You're just seeing things... You're uh, special. And that's the fantastical element. And in this movie, Field of Dreams, Ray's daughter is watching Harvey at one point, right? That's right. And she says, I like that, it's funny, and he makes her turn it off because he's hearing voices. The man's sick. He's trying to reconcile it himself, so... There's a lot of actually cute little callbacks or little nods in certain directions to past films, past literature, past writers. Of course, Terrence Mann is meant to be J.D. Salinger in this mm -hmm. movie, and his book, what, The Boat Rocker, I think it's called, That's what right? it's called, yeah. Is analogous to Catcher in the Rye, and there's a scene where they argue the validity of that and teaching it in schools. There's, it's pornography! Well, no, actually, the Supreme Court has said it's not, ma'am, and Terrence Mann is one of the great satirists of our generation, he's won Pulitzer Prizes, and I thought that scene with the teaching body versus PTA, the, the PTA, it, right? right, on either side of the mm -hmm. argument. The efforts that the teachers were making to actually rationally explain the virtues of the celebrated writer to a, a group that was totally irrational and totally emotional about something they didn't understand. Midwesterners. Yeah. Bible no. Belt. Well, the principal, Mike Nussbaum, does a good job. Yeah, he's actually a really good character in a small role. He makes a rational argument, but then... He does. Amy Madigan, who plays Annie, Ray's wife, is actually the one who suggests, let's get violent, when she and Beulah are arguing about the book. Yeah. Want to step outside? 
fine. And it was her emotionally enjoining the group to say, stand up for your rights, stand up for constitution, stand up for free speech. That actually won the crowd over to allow the teacher of this book to continue rather than the rational arguments of the teacher's character, which hits close to home to me now when we look at the things we see in the public sphere now, a lot of the ranting and raving that seems to just, through sheer force of volume, supersede rational and logical debate. On both sides, it's almost all yelling and insulting. on every side. That's why I enjoyed that small character so much in this, because he was doing his level best just to actually cite fact and cite reason to people and hope that they would see it. The Constitution says this book is not pornography, so that's why it's being read in classes and schools and stuff. Well, the Supreme Court did, and the Constitution allows free speech and all of the above. But yeah, essentially, that's right. Yeah. We've done a lot of comedies, and this isn't a comedy per se, but there have been a lot of failed laughs in other movies that are supposed to be funny. I think there's a lot of comedy in this, including in that scene when Ray is not paying attention to what's going on because he's trying to figure out what go the distance means. And then when everyone's supposed to raise their hands (laughs) because they believe in the Constitution, Ray's not doing it, so she smacks him on the arm. (laughs) That's (laughs) That's right. One of many funny moments that they have together. They're a great couple. She's a very permissive wife, maybe a little bit too permissive. Well, she's a flower child. Maybe that's part of it. She's the black sheep of her family, clearly. Yes. She doesn't really belong in Iowa. Neither does Ray. It's interesting. Ray was born in New York. He went to Berkeley, and that's where he met her. So one coast to the other one. And he ends up, and she does, obviously, too, living in the middle of the country in Iowa. He split the difference. It really does cover the country, doesn't it? Yeah, I think you're right. This is a movie that has some sly humor in it, some of those little winks, like that PTA meeting. And when you say we've talked about a lot of comedies, incidentally, you should really be air-quoting the word comedies quite heavily, because as we've mentioned, some of them are befuddling how they get that definition at all. The Longest Yard was a supposed great comedy, one of the greatest of all time, and we said in that podcast, we didn't laugh at all. Unfunny, good and enjoyable, but Mm. unfunny, weird. Of course, the scene where he tries to abduct Terrence Mann. With the finger gun. With the finger gun in the pocket, and Terrence Mann turns it on him and says, show me your gun. I don't have to show you my gun. And then Terrence Mann comes after him with the crowbar and says, you can't do that, you're a pacifist. Rules? There are no rules here. There's no rules here. (laughs) The scene in the V-dub bus van. They're peeling out with Terrence Mann in tow for Minnesota. I love that music cue. China Grove, one of my favorite ever music cues in any movie. Using it. Exactly. That's the last line he says before they go on the next day they're traveling yeah. to Minnesota. It wouldn't ever describe this as a laugh out loud comedy, but it's got the feel good, sly humor to it mm. at times. Because it levels out. There's a lot of emotion evoked at various points in this movie. Especially the last 20 minutes or so in the movie. Yeah. That whole big long scene. When a lot of things happen, obviously we'll talk about that a little later on. Exactly. Amongst other scenes. And so I think a little bit of humor here and there, a little bit of levity, a little bit of down-to-earthness. Kevin Costner does a great job, I think, of playing that kind of... Excellent casting. Placid, down-to-earth, a little bit clueless, perhaps, right, at times, but doing his damnedest kind of common man in weird circumstances. And that, along with winks and nudges here and there, helps get you through the emotional peaks and valleys that this thing has scattered throughout, and like you said, especially towards the end. They talked about Tom Hanks maybe would have been cast, and he wasn't a big star yet. He'd been in Big, and that's probably one reason why they thought about him for this, because, oh my God, Tom Hanks... Then he went through a valley, which wasn't so good. He wasn't a star anymore. He gets a League of Their Own, another right. baseball movie. You're not a referencing Joe versus the Volcano right now, are you, Ryan? Not a hit. That movie is a classic. A lot sir. of people feel that way, actually, but it was not a success at the time. But anyway, he was in line for it. Would have been good casting at the time, I think, or any time, really, for Tom Hanks. Yeah. Robin Williams, they talked about him. Robin Williams was getting every script offered him, I'm guessing, at that point. But then, as the producer says in the making of, Robin Williams hears voices. What's the story? Yeah. <laughs> of course he hears voices. But you get somebody rational like Costner. I've said this many times. He had that six-year run where he did so many good movies that were either hits, critical successes, or both, starting with No Way Out in 1987 and also The Untouchables in 1987. Right. Bull Durham in 88. This in 89. Dances with Wolves is 
Oscar-winning blockbuster opus the year after this. JFK, The Bodyguard, which, like it or not, was a big financial success. And I think A Perfect World is a damn good film, too, in 1993. So whatever failings he has as an actor, and a lot of people I know don't like him very much, in the right role, he's terrific. I don't think he's Oscar-worthy necessarily in this movie, but he's the right guy for the role. You want to follow him, I think, on this little journey. Yeah, exactly. He's likable, and it's funny because he's the protagonist of the movie. He's the main character. He gets the vast majority of the screen time in this. I think there's few, if any, scenes that exist yeah, without yeah, him. I don't know if there are any, are there? There's a scene where Annie and her brother Mark are having a conversation just after she got to Okay, the right, phone. yeah. There's kind of a tag to the scene where he's on the phone with her, but you're right. Yeah, I guess technically he's not in that scene. No, but he's in 95, 99% of this movie. It doesn't feel like he has to carry it because he's not what the movie is actually about. The movie's actually about these mystical characters that show up in the field. The ghosts. The ghosts. He's just there facilitating the viewer's journey to understand what that's all about to the extent we ever do. And for himself, too, because at the end, I didn't understand it, but I've done it. Exactly. I'm glad he was cast in this role. Tom Hanks would have been great. Robin Williams, I think, would have been different. That's like saying, would Christopher Walken have been a better Han Solo or just a different Han Solo, right? Not better. No, probably not better. I don't know. Robin Williams at the time, I think it would have been impossible to envision him playing a low-key role. This was pre-Goodwill Hunting, right? And Mm -hmm. then thereafter you realize, okay, the man can actually dial it down and act when he needs to in a role. This same year he was nominated for an Oscar for Dead Poet Society, where most of that is dialed down. He has some Robin Williams moments, and it's actually a very emotional movie. He's got an emotional ending for sure, just like this one does. So he could have done it, but I think they did the right thing with Costner. Just like Amy Madigan. She's not a big star, but I think she's great in this film. Ray Liotta, though. I'm not so sure, a shoeless Joe Jackson. Yeah. For one thing, he's a Brooklyn dude. He's a little bit intimidating. And that's what the director, Phil Alden... <laughs> Did you cower slightly every time he came on screen? Please, sir. I'll like behave. I'm, I'm picturing him in Goodfellas the year after this, but also every other yeah. movie he's ever made. He doesn't really come across... Well, maybe Blow, where he plays Johnny Depp's father. One of his better roles. No one ever talks about it, and they should. But apart from a movie like that, and some parts of this, I guess, he does seem like a threat all the time, like he's going to just blow his stack and start punching or killing people. He's got like a simmering, aggressive quality. And Shoeless Joe can have that, but Shoeless Joe didn't sound like this. Shoeless Joe wasn't this articulate. He was a hick from the South. He probably never went to school. He's probably better, he is definitely better cast in the movie the year before, this Amen Out. D.B. Sweeney played him. Yeah, and for any baseball dorks, and I think we're probably in the baseball dork categories, I think we both like the history of the game, we both like reading about it, you might recognize that Ray Liotta is miscast in this role, and you might notice things like the Brooklynization of a guy that should be from South Carolina, or the fact that he throws and bats from the wrong side. Mm -hmm. Only because that was the best way Ray Liotta could play the game. And Phil Alden Robinson, the director, talked about that in the making of. He's a ghost, but you still should be true to what he is. By that logic, he could be a woman. He could be anything different. It should be what Shoeless Joe was. But if this is what you're going to do to get the best physical performance out of Leota when he's batting, which is only once in the whole film when he has batting practice. That's right. He hit some real dingers, too. Did he really? Into the corn? Yeah. You don't remember that? Well, I thought they cut, so it could have been a ball being hit some other way. But okay. His swing looks pretty legit. I can see him actually doing it. Oh, There's actually oh, sorry, a, I misunderstood you. You mean, did Ray Liotta actually hit the ball yard? Like Costner did in a Bull Derby, a legit yeah, home run. I don't know. No, that I shouldn't say. I was just saying... The uh, character does. The though, character does, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually like that moment when Costner's going to shag flies to him, and since big build-up, the music, everything, and then he, <laughs> he whips hits it. a little bunt. Sorry. Another sorry. good laugh. Yeah. The way he says it, sorry. <laughs> and the look on Shoeless Joe's face is, can this guy even play the game at all? Oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? But of course he can. <laughs> yeah. After he's shagging some balls to Shoeless Joe, Shoeless Joe asks him, can you pitch? Because he wants to take some batting practice. Not bad. Ray, I was going to say Ray Liotta, but Ray, Kevin Costner's character, Ray, 
throws him the first pitch. He smacks a sort of gapper. He throws him a second pitch that almost takes Costner's head off. A comeback or right back. See if you can hit my curve. He says, I see you can hit the curve. Okay. That apparently wasn't intentional, and Costner rolled with it, which is smart, because he wasn't supposed to get almost hit by the ball, I don't think. No? That's what I was reading. If that was just like a happy accident during filming, then I thought it worked really well, because Mm -hmm. it was, again, one of those cute moments in the film of Ray just sort of living his dream awkwardly. Now, we said that Annie is a very permissive wife, and to let him build that field is incredibly permissive. But on the other hand, the whole storyline, the only drama really in the whole film, or conflict, I should say, is the cliche of, we're going to lose the farm. Yeah. But as I was reading online, I didn't know this till I read this online. I guess farmers know a lot more about this than I do. Wait, wait. Farmers know more about corn farming than you, Ryan? Breaking news in the podcast, yeah. <laughs> I don't know that much about farming. But it says there that if a baseball field was maybe two or even possibly three acres, it's probably more like two, on a corn farm, that would not be enough to ruin them. They would have had to spend money on the actual equipment and sodding and all that kind of stuff. Apparently, by the way, they made this movie in a drought, and growing that corn, they had to ship water in. They couldn't keep the grass green, so they painted green. They painted it green. They dammed a local river mm. to divert water. But it worked well because mm. all the corn is real. They painted the field, evidently. Not the whole time, I don't think, but at parts during the summer. They yeah, shot the movie during the summer. It would yellow out yeah. in patches. And there's a cost associated with building the diamonds. And you see professional-grade lights that they've mm-hmm. erected. I'm sure those things don't come cheap, along mm-hmm. with the electrical upgrades they needed to run that stuff. Right. But they were only using a small percentage of the overall acreage, presumably, of any successful corn farm in Iowa. Two acres is unlikely to really financially... But I guess the point is, I didn't know that until reading this this time. And I've watched this movie so many times, so if I didn't know that as a baseball fan and as an amateur corn enthusiast, (laughs) which I am not, then no one else would think about it either, I guess. I don't understand the necessity for that whole subplot anyway. To me, watching this movie, it's ancillary to the whole crux of it anyway. I guess the equivalent is It's a Wonderful Life, only more so. So A money crisis at the end. A money crisis at Mm -hmm. the end. Where the money crisis was the real inciting event for George Bailey to really go off the deep end, in this case, the money crisis has absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the movie. It's just kind of happening in the background, right? And then at the end of it all, it wraps itself up with a tidy bow. But had Ray, say, for instance, decided he had to go get Terrence Mann because the field and its ghostly players... It wasn't really achieving its potential. It wasn't doing anything for him. And he had a vision that should he get Terrence Mann on board, that it would somehow lead to people paying him for the field. Then it would actually interplay with the rest of the plot. But as it is right now, you have Ray doing his thing. And then periodically, you've got Annie's brother, Mark, showing up as the heel of the movie, threatening to take the farm away because he's bought the banknote from the local bank. And then nothing really ever comes of that except for, I guess, the one emotional moment with Doc Graham in the later stages of the movie. Well, something comes of it because Mark finally believes. He sees the players. Before he sees any of the players, though, is a great moment when he walks in after driving up, walks right past a batted ball. It's a great scene. The batter swings and Mark doesn't know his thing. Hi! The ghostly catcher is trying to charge at him from behind and being held back. Well, by, it's the batter. The ghostly batter, sorry, and is held back by the ghostly right. catcher. And, of course, Mark can't see any of it. That's also talked about in the making of how they did it. Maybe the commentary by Robinson. And all they did was use, I think it was a wiffle ball or something that would never have hurt Timothy Busfield had the ball hit him. 
and the director had to tell him, look, the batter's not going to hit with the bat. He's not going to hit the ball, or if he does, it won't hurt you. Yeah. But the whole point is he'll swing and miss regardless, but time this as close as you can. Still impressive the guy didn't flinch. Maybe they say, did multiple takes. Even if I knew it was a wiffle ball, I can't envision walking through the field of play like that and without flinching, making it look absolutely natural as if nothing's going on around me. Maybe I it was take four or something. I'm sure it was more than take four. However they did it, good on that guy. So anyway, he doesn't see that happen, but he does finally see the players after Karen saved by Doc, who makes the great sacrifice. Do not sell the farm, Ray. you got to keep the farm, Ray. Now, he doesn't know people are coming and going to pay all that money. So then the question becomes, how does he think they're going to pay for the farm? Because he's the one saying, you're going to lose this thing right now. Maybe not right now, but you're going to lose this thing very soon if you don't sign the paper. What it comes down to for me, all this being said, we've already agreed that we both love this movie. It's great. And this is all backseat directing 30 years on mm -hmm. on my part, I suppose. But And some of the other movies we've talked about, I've whined a little bit about some of the romantic subplots that just seem to get shoehorned into otherwise unrelated plots. Because they want a woman in there. Because you know, they want something to, I guess, appeal to a demographic that otherwise would have no reason to go see a sports movie. This kind of felt that way to me. It felt like a subplot that was shoehorned in to try to appeal to a wider audience that might not necessarily buy the fantastical storyline, but okay, maybe they'll get into the struggling farmer who's battling against the bank aspect of mm -hmm. it. It didn't do anything for me. It was a little bit of a distraction. And at the end of it all, when there's the ultimate salvation of people will come and watch this baseball game, they'll give you 20 bucks because they want to find peace and they'll find that reliving the memories of a better time. I would have personally preferred if the financial crisis wasn't an aspect of it to just have an open and available I don't want to say salvation, but you know what I mean. Have this just open and available to everyone. Because let's face it, not everyone even has $20 to go spend and to sit down and relive their past. And so it was kind of like a commoditization of that dream, that inner peace that Terrence Mann gives a speech about. Strangers are going to save the day by bringing the money. I don't know how either Karen, who says it first, or how Terrence knows that this is going to happen. They don't know, I guess, but how they even guess it's going to happen. And then later that same day, it seems like it's maybe 20 minutes later, people are streaming in. Yeah. <laughs> but just like in It's a Wonderful Life, people, out of the goodness of their heart, want to help out the hero and save him and also get something out of it because he's been great to the town of Bedford Falls, Jimmy Stewart has, and now Ray has given them an opportunity with this baseball field to give them the peace that they lack, as Terrence says. So yeah. I guess that's the trade-off. That farm, by the way, is still there. I think at one point it wasn't, but Don Lansing's farm is still available to be toured in Dubuque County, Iowa. From April to November, you can go. Only about ten and a half hours away, by the way. <laughs> we could drive there one day now. I guess we can. We'll pile into my 2012 Hyundai Accent, Ryan. <laughs> it's a sweet ride. We'll just take that 10 and a half hour trip. Leave at 8 in the morning, get there at about 6 at night. Yeah, feeling fresh. A lot of people fun. do, especially when it comes to father and son's relationships, and maybe mother-daughter, but I'm sure it's more father and son. Well, I've always looked up to you like a father, Ryan. So. <laughs> I'm a little bit older. Yeah, it's true. You did tell me earlier that you reshelled your nut. Oh, that's right. And I haven't done the nutshell. You well. haven't told me what more it is. More than 20 minutes in yet. So... The reason why the nutshell works with Bev so much is because she does the plot description, and that's where I first started doing this. Let me make this simpler with a, one little pithy line, sometimes often, in fact, missing the point. So with you, we don't do that, and I often forget to do it. You're right. I do have a different nutshell than I did yesterday, which is, he built it. They came. Bazinga! All right, thank you. Ah, <laughs> oh, now I can finally relax. I've been, I've been <laughs> sitting on the edge of my seat in anticipation for all about it. 25 minutes here. This is like tantric podcasting, Ryan. You're keeping me on edge for... Way too long. The If You Build It, He Will Come line that's whispered so often in the film was 39th on the top 100 quotes. And it is one of the more famous quotes. It could have been even higher than that, I think. I'm actually surprised it's that low. And it's often misquoted. A lot of times it'll be... They. You, right. If yeah. you build it, they will come. 
but he, obviously Shoeless Joe, but in a way, he is really his dad. And I read somewhere, maybe it's in the making of again, Robinson talks about how one of the overseas markets, Japan or China or somewhere like that, on the poster in their language, not in English, it says something like, father and son reunite at the end of this movie. <laughs> Way to give it away, guys. <laughs> also, it says here, USA, Shoeless Joe, because that's the name of W.P. Kinsella's book, Shoeless Joe. And he wanted to call his book Dreamfield. So he wasn't upset at all when the studio wanted to call this movie Field of Dreams. That's a helpful coincidence. And apparently the studio didn't want to call it Shoeless Joe because they felt like it was a hobo-esque mm-hmm. kind of I could evolution. see why they think that. Most people who don't know anything about baseball would never have heard of Shoeless Joe Jackson. I would be a fan, I think, to know his name. He's not as famous as Babe Ruth, obviously. I was deeply disappointed when I went to see Hobo with a Shotgun and it wasn't about a baseball game. Another really miscast expect- version of Shoeless Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Shoeless Joe buys a pair of cleats. They don't fit too well, so he takes them off, grabs his shotgun, and goes on a killing spree. <laughs> I'm so mad I'll kill people over this. <laughs> and one thing in this movie, by the way, it's a funny line. Ray Liotta, again, though, Ray Liotta's laugh has always been intimidating. Ty Cobb wanted to play here, but none of us could stand the son of a bitch when he was alive, so we told him to stick it. <laughs> That's not true. Apparently, Ty Cobb and Shoeless Joe were friends, and they respected each other. They're both great players in the same time frame. That might be true, but I have a sneaking suspicion that the rest of the guys in the Diamond probably wouldn't want Ty Cobb there based on his well-earned reputation. Mm. You're right, though. Ray Liotta's laugh is damn intimidating. In every movie, you think of a Ray Liotta movie you've seen, he does not have a nice laugh. It is more like, I'm about to murder you. Yeah, exactly. Even when he's not in a movie like this. This movie is like a barrel ride over a waterfall. that It dumps you right into the thick of the plot True. immediately. You know, you get all of five minutes of introduction, voiceover over a montage of Ray describing his upbringing, describing his father and all he went through. Well, not even all he went through. Very briefly what he went through. You get a good snapshot of it. His father was in his mid-50s when Ray was born, so he really was an old man, as he Ray was. describes it. And later on he says, I only ever knew him when he had been beaten down by life. Yeah, I don't like that line. I only knew him later on when he was worn down by life. It's such yeah. a written line. It doesn't sound like something somebody would ever say. I feel like they could have elicited the same sentiment but said it better somehow, you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I think I understand what they were going for. I mean, we've all seen... Probably our parents beaten down by life, the stresses and concerns of adulthood. But you're right, it didn't come across naturally. But in the introduction, you don't really get a lot out of it, except that he worked on the docks, he had a family, his wife died, I fell out with him, and then I never saw him again, and then he died. But you don't really understand what the fallout is. I met my wife, Annie, at university, like you said, in Berkeley. We got married. She wanted to buy a farm. We bought a farm. Now we're in Iowa. Bingo, bango, bongo. Here we are. And all of a sudden, he's in a cornfield hearing voices, right? And you don't really get a lot of time to get to know the characters, and right away, you're with Ray Kinsella trying to figure out who the hell is talking to him when he's in the middle yeah, of this cornfield. Yeah, that field is built fairly quickly in this movie, it's true. It doesn't take 45 minutes to an hour. A lot of movies would take forever no. to get to the point, which is to get that field built and have ghosts come play baseball in it. But I would say within the first half hour, all of that's happened. I think Although, it's less than that. I think it's the first scene... The first. No, scene. I mean when you finally see Shula's show, it's probably about half an hour of the movie. Oh, okay, yeah. He sees the vision of the field in that first scene. Facing the wrong way. Face, yeah, the, the whole <laughs> plate is facing, basically facing the house at least, but when they actually build it, and it is more aesthetic pleasing it actually faces away from the house so ray saw the vision he's like oh that's what i need to do but i won't do it that way (laughs) but i'm gonna make it better (laughs) so you get the field immediately essentially because he asks some farmers whether or not they hear voices in the field too and then he gets laughed at at the supply store but noises noises noises. who's hearing yeah i heard noises not voices i gotta go bye i need some 10w30 bye 
but then he goes and he buys the equipment and immediately builds the field with his wife's permission. And then, like you said, it takes a little while before we actually see anybody show up. I like that a whole winter has passed. Christmas Day or around the Christmas holidays, you see him in a sweater and you see a Christmas tree. Everyone else is celebrating. He's looking outside the snow on his field. So it's at least six months, probably, well, more than that. It's probably almost a full year between when he actually finishes building the field and when Shoeless Joe first appears. There's a man on your lawn. Yeah. That happens out of nowhere, too. There's no build-up. Why would there be a build-up to it? But he obsesses about that field. And maybe by that next summer, which I guess we're now in 88, because they say at one point it's 1988, Wrigley Field had just gotten lights, and he mentions that in the movie. Originally, I think in the book, they mentioned every field now has lights except for Wrigley Field, but mm-hmm. in 88 they got them, too. So I guess he would have been building in 87, and then finally Shoeless Show comes out in 88, the same year they released Eight Men Out. It's nice that they delayed it in that way. Mm-hmm. He didn't build the field, and immediately players start to ghostly appear. I guess it's a testament to the faith he had in the diamond and also speaks to just how permissive Annie is in letting him just for no apparent reason anyway, build the field and then have it sit there empty for the better part of a year with no real payoff to speak of. And then finally, when Shoeless Joe does appear, we're keeping this field. You bet your ass we are. Yeah. One of her best moments as well. But again, I can understand why wives might watch this movie and say, that's nuts. Or even husbands, but that's insane. Listen, it's more than a little insane, and it gets progressively more insane as the movie goes along, the kinds of things she's willing to do, right up until the point of having the bank sit down. I mean, at this point, Ray has gone on his little road trip to find Terrence Mann, right? It's already been established that Annie is a big fan of Terrence Mann, as is Ray. Mm-hmm. So when he convinces her to let him go on a road trip to Boston to track down Terrence Mann because the voice has told him that he needs to... That was the ease his pain, I think. He has no idea who it is. He just guesses. He guesses. They have a shared dream that he cites to her that convinces her that this is real and Mm -hmm. he needs to The exact same dream, though. Not just similar, the exact same one. Yeah. And I can see why in the story of this movie, the life of this movie, why she would accept that. Because we've already seen her to be a dreamer in her own way or an acceptor of dreams like he has. Or fantasies or whatever you want to call it. Well, not just accept her. At that point, she's already witnessed the ghost players coming in and out of the mm. corn, right? So at that point, you have to kind of accept that there's something fantastical is happening in my cornfield. So we had the same dream, and you have to go to Boston? All right, fair enough. But while he's gone, the bank comes knocking, and her brothers now bought the banknote for their farm, and they're on the verge of foreclosure. And she's so willing to accept this. I mean, it's not really a fantasy at that point, because she's seen what's happening, the field is all well and good, but if the bank forecloses on our farm... The field's I, gone. The field's gone. So I should probably tell Ray that he needs to come home and figure this out, but she doesn't. She gets on the phone with Ray and says, how are things? Oh, great. All right, I'll see you soon. Hangs up, and her brother's in the kitchen saying, why didn't you tell him? Yeah, she's the most supportive individual on the planet. She also realizes that her husband's going through a midlife crisis. He was born in 52. Shoeless Joe died in 51, by the way. So I'm amazed that John Kinsella did not name his son Joe, considering his favorite baseball player of all time was Shoeless Joe. But anyway, Ray's about mid-30s at the point of this movie. Maybe a little early for a midlife crisis, but he seems to be having one. He's so terrified of becoming his father, which I'm still not terrified of that. I don't want to be, I guess, but I'm not terrified of it at the same point. But he gets to live out all of these childhood fantasies. He loves baseball. He gets to build a baseball field and watch people play. The great players, some of them of all time, playing in front of him. Yep. And he also gets to meet his favorite writer and become friends with his favorite writer. He has lived his dream through and through, pretty much, mm-hmm. by the time this movie is over. That scene where he does drive to Boston to pick up Terrence Mann is one of the great sequences in this movie, too. Once he arrives, I should say, not the actual driving to it. Oh, incidentally, I did find the whole aspect of him researching Terrence Mann kind of entertaining too. 
here in 20... Microfiche. <laughs> Microfiche, Jet Magazine interviews, all these old newspaper printouts in an era where we can just go on Google and pretty much find out anything we ever need to. Remembering what it was like to have to go to a library and search through mm-hmm. the microfiche to find a newspaper clipping. It was a whole different world. But anyway, he figures out that Terrence Mann is sort of a recluse in Boston at this point. He's trying to track him down. He's harassing people on the street, including that little old lady that just gives mm-hmm. him the business. I ain't going to tell you anything. You're a pest. Go the camera's on. so far away in that scene that that had to have been that they had it out the back of some van and nobody, including her, that he would have talked to. There's probably all kinds of outtakes him talking to people yeah. and them not knowing it's Kevin Costner. And I'm sure she didn't. And he's asking, maybe he wasn't actually asking about Terrence Mann. Maybe he said something else. They just didn't film that part or didn't put that in the movie. But her reaction is so legitimate that I'm not going to tell you nothing. Yeah. It's She's so way great. too angry to be an actor. It's I think. so great. It's so legit that I really hope it's just somebody on the street that they caught on camera. And he does eventually convince somebody to tell him where Terrence Mann lives in exchange for some money. But, of course, it wouldn't be a movie if Terrence Mann just went along quietly, mm-hmm. right? So he finds his apartment. He knocks on the door. He gets the door slammed in his face a few times. Because Terrence didn't close the door properly, the second time he slammed it in his face, he sort of creeps into the apartment with his finger in his pocket, pointing it at Terrence and saying, you're coming with me to this baseball game. And he says, well, what the hell is that in your pocket? That's a gun. That's not a gun. That's your finger. No, it's not. Well, then show me your gun. More humor. See? Yeah, I don't have to show you my gun. And of course, Ray had, during his research, found out that Terrence was now writing computer software to teach people to resolve their differences without anger or Mm -hmm. fighting. So finally, Terrence Mann grabs a crowbar I'm going to beat you senseless with this crowbar and chases him around the apartment. But you can't do that. You're a pacifist. And then the look on James Earl Jones' face. Like, damn it, you're right. The only swear in the whole movie, if that's even really a swear, you can almost say that on television. Well, you can on The Walking Dead, is shit. Nobody says anything else worse than that that I remember. They spell it once. At that PTA meeting, Beulah right. spells True. the S-H-I-T okay, right. because she's too proper to actually mm-hmm. say it. Or maybe they couldn't say it more than once and still get the rating yeah. they got, maybe. But... At the Boston-Oakland game that Ray takes him to, it says online that during the game when the go the distance voice happens and Ray looks up on the school board and sees Moonlight Graham and all that, that James Earl Jones flinches in his seat a little bit. And then you can see him looking up at the scoreboard as well, very subtly. I looked for that very closely because I read that before I watched the movie this time, and I don't think that's true in either case. He doesn't seem to be flinching, and he doesn't seem to be looking at the scoreboard. We know he does hear the voice and saw the Moonlight Graham thing because he reveals that in the next scene. Right. But I don't think it gives it away at all, so I think no. that person's just imagining that happening. Now, you said yesterday you weren't sure how James Earl Jones got in front of Ray's van, but the reason why is because Ray doubles back. He's going a different direction. So then James Earl Jones, and you got that great music cue. I did not notice that. I just thought James Earl Jones had super speed or something in this movie. A lot of people speculate that maybe he was dead all along. There's even a little video clip on YouTube where Jones talks about that. I don't think it holds up because, for one thing, Mark actually sees him and says hi to him. Who's this Easter bunny? And Mark doesn't see the ghosts. Plus, he does interact with people, including the old people in Chisholm, Minnesota. Yeah, I don't... So some of it could have worked, but overall, no, it doesn't really hold up. Yeah, I don't think it He does go up. into the corn, though, in a way that had Ray just gone into his corn all this time, as he must have had to do, he still has a job to do being a corn farmer or Annie or Karen. If they'd gone into the corn, they would just be going into corn. When the players go in there, we disappear. When Doc, as the old man, goes in there, he disappears. When Terrence Mann goes in there, he disappears. So maybe the idea is if you're the right person for them, someone that's been accepted, like Shoeless Joe even does accept him, that even if you weren't dead, you now are, but you're also on a higher plane kind of thing. Yeah. James Earl Jones talks as well about how it's his idea that a couple of weeks later, months later, maybe a little paper airplane gets thrown out of there with writing on it now because that's his whole purpose for being there is to reinvigorate himself with the writing. And also, I guess that would be a publicist kind of thing. He becomes Ray's publicist because he would be promoting the fact that Shoeless Joe Jackson comes to Iowa 
I kind of like the idea that Terrence Mann never comes back after he goes into the cornfield. Because Ray, of course, says to him, I want a full description of what it's like over there. But right? why couldn't he come out of there? But the players can. Why can't no, he? No, he could have. He went in, I'm sure he could come but back. But he's not a living being anymore, though. He can't cross that pebble line either, just like Shoeless Joe couldn't. We don't know. He could. I think if we agree that he was more than likely alive, he was able to go there because he was invited. Right? Ray mm. says, I want to go there. I built this thing. I You're guessing my corn. You're guessing my corn. Exactly. Why can't I go? And then Shoeless Joe's answer is, you're not invited. Yeah, because you have a real life here with your family. Right. And so, you've got to keep this farm going, too, so we can keep playing here. Yeah, so in my head, the way I interpret that scene where James Earl Jones does disappear into the corn is that if you're not invited into whatever it is that exists in that other plane, you will just experience corn. But if you do have that invitation open to you, it opens the proverbial door and you can cross in. Now, in Terrence Mann's case, he's presumably living at that point. So could he come back out and could he cross the gravel line on the diamond? But even though he promises Ray he will come back, he'll describe what it's like, he'll do more writing and all of that, I like the thought that much like the players found peace in coming back from the afterlife to play baseball, that Terrence Mann found peace in whatever it is that lay in the corn and would feel no need to come back thereafter, except maybe to take part in the game in some way, even as a spectator. Right, because he wanted to do that at his field, and he also wanted to play baseball. But exactly. Never got to. This is a man that lived his life as an advocate, as a poet, as an agent of change in the mm -hmm. 60s and 70s. And he got disenchanted with the world, and he became a little bit more reclusive and a computer programmer into the 80s, to the end of the decade. But he's bitter, and he's done with the world. And he says several times, I just want to be left alone. Mm -hmm. I want my privacy. No! What do you want? Oh, yeah. Except, oh, yeah. except for the baseball game when he's ranting. Dog and a bear. And all he wants is a dog and a <laughs> That's beer. That's another funny moment. That I is a funny moment. Except that I wish they'd actually poured a beer rather than, what do you want? Dog and a beer. I'll make that too. And the guys at the stand just pull out things from behind the counter. I'm like, how long has that beer been sitting there? That's going to be hot and flat. <laughs> the hot dog too. Pretty big crowd. And yet no one else is waiting for any food or drinks. No, exactly. The three guys are just standing there behind the counter twiddling their thumbs at a sold out game. But all that to say that Terrence Mann wanted nothing more than to, I guess, find the peace that eluded him his entire life due to his fame. And presumably he would have found that once he went into the corn, right? So why yeah. come back? I also love the moment where someone does recognize who he is, but she just throws it off. It's the editor of the paper, the meet and Chisholm, where they're reading her article. Right. You wrote that. The day he died. You're a good writer. Yeah, we should... So are you. She pats him on the arm yeah. and walks away. That's exactly what he always wanted. He probably doesn't care if he's acknowledged as a good writer, but when it does happen, she doesn't want anything from him. She's just saying, yeah, you meant something to me. You're a good writer. Another inspiration for him to get back into writing because this woman says, you were good, and then leaves him alone. Yeah, there's no harassment involved. She doesn't want anything from him. You did mention that at the baseball game, they both hear the voice saying, go the distance, right? Even though Terrence Mann at the time would not acknowledge it. On the scoreboard, there's also the reference to Moonlight Graham, mm -hmm. the player from 1922 that got into one game for one inning but never batted, and then later became a doctor. I don't know if it says on the scoreboard 1922, but in reality, Moonlight Graham, it was 1905 when he played his one game. It yeah. wasn't the end of the season, though. It was the middle of the season. But he is on baseball reference. He did only play one yeah, game. He didn't guy. bat, and he did die in Chisholm, Minnesota. Do you think there was any part of Ray, when he heard that voice saying, Go the distance that he thought it meant that the voice wanted him to hook up with Terrence Mann at the baseball game. Right? <laughs> Homosexual love affair. <laughs> yeah. And that's why Terrence Mann flinched. That in, in really doesn't fit the tone of this movie. <laughs> no, probably not. But you got to think it crossed his mind at least once. 
So anyway, they visit the newspaper because once they're there, they look in the phone book and they can't find Doc or Archibald Graham. And of course, it's because he's died. And you're right, that is one of the great little moments of the movie when they talk to that reporter that had been in town, I guess, for a dog's age. And she reads some of the obituary that she wrote 17 years ago for Doc Graham. Such great shorthand. So are you. And that's it. Yeah, a little pat on the shoulder. She doesn't say anything else. Mm -hmm. Doesn't even acknowledge it. But you can see in James Earl Jones' face, he recognizes that she knows who he is. But it's just content to leave him be. Then we meet one of the great legends of all time in his last ever movie. In fact, his last ever moment on a movie screen. Because he made a few TV movies after this. But Burt Lancaster's last film moment was what maybe was going to be the next Burt Lancaster at the time, Ray Liotta, who's not right. become as big a star as Lancaster was through his whole career. But still, but, the last moment was, you were good. And the look on Lancaster's face, is he's touched by that. The character is, but it's almost like the actor is too. And then he walks into the corn. And that's it for him. We don't see him anymore. I wonder if at the time, Burt Lancaster knew that it was going to be his last big screen role, in which case it might have meant a lot. Who knows? It might have been filmed out of order, too, so it wasn't the last scene necessarily. Oh, exactly, yeah. But it is fitting that it's the last scene you see on the big screen of Burt Lancaster. It kind of fits both the character and the actor. Now, we know this is one of the most emotional movies for guys like us, but the one that hit me more this time than it usually does, and not so much at the end with the, hey, dad, you want to have a catch, which is a great moment, too. But it is when Doc decides to become a doctor again. He's still Archie Graham. I guess he must know that if he crosses that line of pebbles, he's going to become the doctor, and then this whole thing is done. But it's also a nice touch, and the only time we see him playing, the only game he plays, he probably plays other times, but the only at-bat we see him have, he hits a sacrifice fly this guy who sacrificed for everyone else and did something he wanted to do as a doctor, yes, but there was still a bit of a sacrifice there. Such a great little subtle moment. I assume that they know enough about baseball, though that's why they put that in there. Because he didn't get a hit, but he hit the ball and he drove in a run. And he also got to bat once, which is what the old man even told Ray. I just wanted to bat once, wink at the pitcher. He does all those things. Yeah, it's an emotional moment. It hits me pretty hard every time. There's pretty much three... And I mean, it's fitting for a baseball movie that there's three of anything, mm -hmm. right? But there's three moments that really hit me that way. And of course, like you said, there's that climactic moment at the end of the yeah. movie. Dad, you want to have a catch? There's that moment where Doc Graham crosses the line and sacrifices his ability to continue to play his fantasy game in the afterlife. But the one that always hits me the hardest is when Terrence Mann and Ray are mm -hmm. still in Chisholm, Minnesota, trying yes. to figure out the Doc Graham mystery. And they're interviewing local people at the bar. Who were real. They actually knew the real Dr. Graham. Like you said, this is based on an actual character who actually lived in Chisholm, Minnesota for his entire life after he gave up the baseball dream. So when they're talking about Moonlight Graham, they're talking about the real person, mm -hmm. right? So there's one elderly guy that James Earl Jones is talking to, and he's just telling a simple story about Doc Graham and how he was married to the love of his life. His wife was deceased after he was. She lived longer than he did. But the story he told was that every store in the town would stock blue hats because they knew that Doc Graham's wife loved blue and she loved hats. And that if Doc Graham walked past the store and saw a blue hat, he would buy it for her. When he passed away, they cleaned out his office and just found it overflowing with blue hats because he had bought so many for her and I guess he just forgot to give her some. So what was his closing line is, I bet you didn't know that or something. No, I didn't. James Earl Jones' The old man's tearing response. up and James Earl Jones is touched by it. And I was tearing up because you could see the genuine emotion in the old mm -hmm. guy's face expressing a simple tale of a man that throughout his lengthy life just continued to think about the well-being and what he could do for his wife. On he was the George basis. Bailey of Chisholm. He was. Again, tying back to its wonderful life. Exactly. That really touched me. And then, of mm -hmm. course, that little epiphany leads into them going back to the hotel room and James Earl Jones has to call home. And then, so I almost said George Bailey. But Ray Kinsella <laughs> has to go for a walk to give him his privacy and that's when we bump into a little time travely moment mm -hmm. of ray meeting doc graham in 1972 chisholm and they go back to his office they have a little chat 
And this was a fantastic moment to me. It wasn't quite as emotional, even though Burt Lancaster delivers, I thought, a great scene. Mm-hmm. Ray's trying to get Doc to come back with him. They talk about the fact that Doc got called up for one inning. He got to play the field, didn't play a ball, like nothing left the infield, never got a chance to bat. And here's where Doc says, all I wanted was to have one at bat to give the pitcher a wink to say, like, I know something you don't know. And that's it. And then he could be content. And Ray says, coming that close to your dream and seeing it pass you by, that would kill some man. That's a real tragedy. Come back with me and I can let you live it. And he says, well, no, son, because the real tragedy would have been if I never became a doctor and I never was able to help this town as much as I did. Which in a movie that really idolizes baseball players and everything that baseball presumably stands for within the American psyche, baseball players are great and it's great to aspire to a game you love and that means a lot to you. But let's be real here. The fact that this guy was a doctor for 40 plus years and all the good he did as described in his obituary, that's impactful. It's a self-realization within the movie. It was such a great scene that we so rarely get in these types of movies. And Ray's doing something for other people too, just like Doc is, by building the field and helping out these ghosts and helping out Terrence Mann. And now Mark's a believer. Yeah. And a lot of other people coming to that field to be believers. Doc has a great line in that scene too. He says, we don't recognize the most significant moments of our lives while they're happening, which is so true. Absolutely. And he also says, I thought there'd be other days. Turns out it was the only day. There's some great lines. And Burt Lancaster, he's not in this movie a ton, but he does a great job. One of the emotional moments in the movie is when young Doc is on the field playing with the ghosts living out that dream. Mark comes by one last time to say, Ray, you're crazy, you're going to lose the farm, sell it. And then he, for some reason, picks up Annie because she's... Karen. Oh yeah, of course, sorry. Picks up the daughter, Karen, Mm -hmm. because she's saying, no, daddy, you don't have to sell the farm. And picks her up and says, no, you're crazy, you're crazy, see? And then... (laughs) drops her off the back of the bleachers that they built next to the field and so she's lying blue-lipped on the ground and Annie runs off saying I'm going to call 911 and Ray just sort of says oh it's okay the ghost has got this the ghost has got this one (laughs) young Doc Graham in his 21 year old self on the diamond is sort of staring from wherever he's standing on second base or something sort of staring at what's going on there's no indication he's going to do anything meanwhile Karen's lying on the ground presumably choking to death on her hot dog It's like a very drawn-out scene for emotional effect, but the whole time I'm thinking, how long can this young girl go without oxygen while this is playing out? (laughs) Anyway, of course, eventually Doc Graham crosses that mystical boundary on the diamond, and he transforms into his elder doctor self and saves the day, gets the hot dog out of Karen's throat. By banging her on the back. Yeah, I don't know about that move exactly. What if the injury had been more severe? What if she had cracked a rib and it punctured a lung or something like that? You guys should really call 911 (laughs) after all. Anyway, that's like a real level of faith you have in your ghost field when you're willing to put your daughter's life at risk in addition has, to your farm. He's had faith since the previous year when he built the field. I guess that's why. He's I a guess. believer all over again. Yeah. He and Terrence talked the previous night about purposes. Raises redemption by bringing his father's favorite player back. He doesn't realize that that next day, or whenever it's supposed to be, maybe a couple of days later, that he'll get to see his father again. Terrence doesn't know what his point is. He learns what that is later on. But Ray's real purpose, I guess, is to have a chance to be with his father and to do all this stuff for these ghosts. So he knows that there's ulterior purposes for more than just himself. Maybe that's what the whole thing with Doc is. I live my dream by playing. Now I get to live my better dream, the dream I actually liked more and meant more certainly to me and to everybody, by being a doctor. For five minutes probably, as well as he said earlier, yeah. to Annie before he actually... Or Karen, now I'm doing it. <laughs> I convinced you. Before he goes off to be in the corn forever. It was actually a nice little send-off, too. I mean, you already talked about the, hey, Rook, you were good. But before Doc Graham, in his elder self, walks back into the cornfield to disappear forever, 
there's a moment of realization that Ray has. Oh, you can't go back. You mm. can't transform back to your younger self. I'm sorry. And Doc Graham says, no, no, it's okay. I lived my dream. And then he says the same line that he says a couple times in the movie. And I got to get going. For Alicia thinks I got a girlfriend. Which is sweet. Now I'm going to go back and spend eternity, presumably, with the wife that I dearly loved through my mm. entire life. It's like the entire package. That in, moment in killed minute. me way more than I ever had before, and it always was effective. It's great. Even more so than the last bit. Let's get to that now. The highlight of the movie and why men will cry. This movie, and Costner said it, Dances with Wolves is another one that men will cry at at the end of more often than women do, it seems, when his friend at Dances with Wolves says, don't you see that you're my friend? You'll always be my friend. But when he gets a chance to meet his dad. Yeah. One thing I noticed, actually, when they're walking into the camera shot before they get to the home plate area and before we get the big music swell and the, hey, dad, you want to have a catch? I think it's Costner's the first one in the shot, but he's touching his hand, and so is Dwyer Brown, who plays John Kinsella, the exact same way. It's subtle. I never noticed it before. I've watched this movie 15 or 20 times. I never noticed that until this time. I think suggesting maybe the actors did something before the take and said, let's do this, as if we had the same gestures. It's just re-emphasizing the relationship, though. The only player left on the diamond that you know of at that point is Joe Jackson, and Ray's talking to him, and then he says in that emphatic way, if you build it, he will come, and then Ray turns the home plate, and there's his dad taking off the catcher equipment. He turns to his wife and says, what do I say? Why don't you introduce him to your family? But he never says, hey, dad, at that point, anyway. Karen, this is my... And they both look at each other, the two guys do, and he doesn't say, this is my father, it's just, right. this is John. It's very clear, even through context. Well, because he does say, that's my father. Yeah. <laughs> but they actually looped in Dad. Originally, the line was, when they shot the movie in Iowa, it was, hey, want to have a catch? And Costner's on the verge of tears, it seems. They looped in Dad because preview audiences demanded it. They wanted that absolute connection where father and son acknowledge who they each are. I don't know if we really needed it, but it definitely does help that moment. The music is wonderful in that moment. And it didn't happen this time, but it's definitely put the waterworks in my eyes in the past. And it probably will more if and when, well, if, when my dad is gone. We don't have a baseball connection, not a sporting kind of thing. We never had that relationship. But whatever problems we had in the past seem to be fine now. We get along pretty damn well. So I won't have as much regret whenever he does die. Yeah. But when I watch this movie in the future, after that time comes, it'll probably affect me more so. Because you'll want that same opportunity to have one more day. And that's what that really comes down to in this movie. Doc wanted one more day as a young man. We didn't want it so much as Ray wanted it for him, but he had that one more day. And now Ray and John get, maybe they'll get more days, but they've had at least one more day with each other. Part of the reason why this movie is just so effective, whether you're a baseball fan or not, and for all of its talk through the Terrence Mann character of baseball being this great game through America's history and the peace it brings people and all that stuff, the true greatness of this movie is less to do with that and more to do with personal experience. So whether or not you and your father or whatever close relation or loved one you want to put in the father's stead, it's less to do with baseball specifically and, like you said, more to do with regret. And it's touched upon and talked about a few times periodically through the movie about things that you wish you had said. Ray had a falling out with his father and never had a chance to mend the fences before his father passed away. I'm sure we all have people in our lives that we've said things to that we regret or that we haven't said things to that we wish we had. Of course. We all hope that we have the opportunity to make that right. And in this case, he didn't. But he had the opportunity to live that one more day to find that opportunity to say those things. And that's what's so effective about it. I don't think it will ever fail to bring the waterworks forth for me. Oh, so it did this time, too. Oh, yeah. I always have the salty discharge with this movie, right? Yeah, you're right. If you were to watch this movie after some friend dies, maybe more so if there was something wrong with that relationship, if something was unsaid. It doesn't have to be a parent at all, does it? No, it doesn't. Absolutely not. It's Mm -hmm. such a great sentiment. And then ultimately, of course, the movie wraps up with people 
piling in through their cars. Bringing their money to George Bailey. This guy is sacrificed throughout the course of the movie for something he believed in in the face of all practical reality, and this is his great reward, I suppose. To the director's credit, it's not fixated upon. The Mm -hmm. movie ends on John and Ray still having their catch, and the camera just sort of pulls back so that in the background... Helicopter shot, yeah. The cars are visible coming in. That whole money woes of the farm thing still does nothing for me. And if the movie had just ended with, hey, Dad, you want to have a catch? And something like, I'd like that. And the one throw, fade to black. That, to me, I think would have been a Yeah, but it does ending. pay off the point that they've gone on for the whole time about having money problems with the farm. You have to pay it off. When you I'm... make the story that way, you have exactly, to pay it off that way. Do, but... I do wonder what they tell the first few people that arrive. <laughs> yeah, the famous guys, they'll be back later. This old catcher you probably don't recognize, and me, I own this farm. We're going to play catch for a while, and you can watch that. Yeah. Got your money handy? Yeah, at that point, it's just after sundown in the summer at some point, so presumably mm. it's like 9 o'clock at night in Iowa, and people are pulling in. Our next game is going to be at 1 o'clock tomorrow, so if you guys want to <laughs> camp out in your cars, we'll be right with you. Eat some of the corn out of the field if you get hungry. <laughs> what in the world are they going to feed them, and where are these people going to sleep? Yeah. To sleep in their cars, I guess. That place is going to be filthy. <laughs> I was reading that Dwyer Brown, who plays John, his father had died. Right before this, I think it was maybe the day before, so he came back from the funeral and had to film this scene, and maybe that's why he is pretty emotional. He also says more than once that it's like a dream come true. He says, this is like a dream come true, playing in that field. But then when Ray asks him what heaven is like, so the place dreams come true. So weird that he says almost the exact same line, about this is a dream come true, and it's not heaven, but this is where dreams come true. This movie is very spiritual, just like It's Wonderful Life. It has moments of, not God in this one, we do have a God representative in It's Wonderful Life at the very beginning, and then an angel through a big part of the second half of the movie. This one's got ghosts and it's got talk of spirituality and it literally talks about heaven. Again, that could have really backfired if this movie didn't have the right tone and wasn't directed really well by Robinson yeah. and acted so well by all the actors and written so well by Robinson. I don't know if I even mentioned it. I know I did yesterday in the other recording. W.P. Kinsella wrote the book that this was adapted from. Right. And he was friends with J.D. Salinger, so the Terrence Mann character was supposed to be Salinger. Well, the real writer knew that famous writer. And I think they went on some kind of road trip together and did some of the things. I don't think it was about finding a baseball player, but they did a road trip together. And Salinger was man, effectively. Salinger became Terrence Mann because the studio was afraid that J.D. Salinger would He's sue gonna sue, them. sue, sue! I like the point you made about dreams and what is heaven and all of that, because the movie does touch a really sensitive tone with spirituality versus religion and all of that, and they never really get too much into it. They don't ever really specify who the voice actually is. Right. You assume it's just some higher power of some kind. I think it's supposed to be Shoeless Joe. It could be God. It could be just in Ray's head. It's hard to tell who's speaking or what they sound like when they whisper. Just like singing. You can always hear what someone sounds like in their normal voice when they sing. If they have an English accent, if they sing or if they yell even sometimes, you don't hear that same accent. And whispering is the same thing. I heard Ed Harris was the voice. Amy Madigan's husband. I don't know if that really makes a lot of sense. He had nothing else to do with this movie. Maybe it's supposed to be Costner. They just made him whisper. I don't know. Or maybe it's Leota. Or maybe it's no one. The credit is the voice as himself. Who does the voice doesn't really matter. Anybody can whisper. And who within the context of the movie itself in that world, who's actually doing the whispering in Ray's head or whether he's just hearing things or... Again, I don't even know if it really matters because ultimately it's on Ray to have the faith to carry through the actions that mm-hmm. the voice dictates to him. And the fact that his father says what is heaven and where dreams come true or whatever the case may be, I really like that because in my mind, that's his father saying, my only dream was to reconcile with my son. That's the regret that I wish I had been able to fix in life. And in heaven, I had that opportunity. And he was able to recreate that in the diamond. And so when there was that parallel line being spoken, that's kind of the way I interpreted it. And I kind of like the thought that if there is some 
afterlife or something like that, that it's a place where you have the opportunity to do the things that you always want to do. The one more day thing. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a nice sentiment. It's not necessarily, hey, you get to shower yourself and all the material wealth you never had on earth. You get to do those meaningful things that you wish you had the chance to do. So a few more plaudits I didn't mention before that, let's see here, it was 28th on the top 100 cheers, so most inspiring, I guess, reconcile with your dad is what the inspiration is there. Sure. It was also nominated for the top 100 genres in the sports category. No movie crossed over and was on multiple lists, even though some of them could have been. Lord of the Rings was, I think, a fantasy film. I think it was second of the fantasy, but it also could have been an epic. There's an epic category there. This right. isn't a great sports film, necessarily, because there's not that much sports in it, actually. There's very little baseball, if you really think about it. But it is about baseball in that way. It certainly is a fantasy film, and that's fitting. It's on the fantasy. I like the fantasy category. It's pretty good. There's some good films in there. It was also nominated for the top 25 music scores. I love James Horner's music. He's got a pan flute in there a couple of times. It's really good music. It's so subtle until the end when you finally have a full orchestra, but it's never booming the way that so many music scores did long before this and still do even now. It's subtle, but it emphasizes the emotions of the moment that it needs to. Mm. And maybe it's the use of things, like you said, the pan flute that does it, but it's... Even a a piano that... When James Earl Jones is in front of the band saying... Go the distance. It hits the right tones at the right moments to really evoke the emotions you're going for. Even if it's understated and subtle, it's super effective, and yep. I really enjoy it. It's also nominated, and this is the first time I've said this in our 21 movies, for the 1998 and 2007 AFI Top 100 lists. And had it made it, Bev and I would have covered it years ago, but it didn't. But it was nominated, I think, justly. It's one of my very favorite movies, period, sports or otherwise. And I do think it's the best movie we've covered so far. Not the best sports movie, per se. That would maybe be Hoosiers. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. I would still make an argument that maybe even Tin Cup mm. might be up there. A lot the of best great golf. Yeah. Sports, yeah, because it does a great job of depicting golf. But as a movie, as an experience, this, I think... And walks such a tightrope. you got to be very impressed with... A director hasn't worked that much. Robinson's only made, I think, five movies. He did Sneakers a few years after this with some of the same cast, including Jones. And he did The Sum of All Fears about ten years later. But oh, he really? barely works. He doesn't direct much at all. It's too bad. You think this movie has set him up for life, but he doesn't really make all that many movies. All right, so big thumbs up for this one. Oh, we didn't say about scoring at the movies. I don't think you can really score at this movie, unless women like weepy messes. Nah, I would be ashamed of myself if I even tried, Ryan. My bad gag about Ray going the distance with Terrence Mann aside, ain't nobody scoring at this movie. All the guys in the audience are too busy weeping into their popcorn (laughs) to really think about that. Although the heartthrob, Kevin Costner, was certainly thought of as a heartthrob, and he's the star of the movie in every scene, or nearly every scene. How was your beer, by the way? Your wicked awesome. It is wicked awesome. It packs a punch, that's for sure. I'm feeling a little buzzed right now. One drink in. Well, you did work today. Yeah, that's true. I did not. I am off today. (laughs) Next week, well, sorry, two weeks, March the 4th, we're going to cover a golf movie, because the Masters is going to start the week after that, when we won't have an episode, and it's going to be our second golf movie, Happy Gilmore. We're going for the golf theme on Masters Weekend, so we picked the most accurate depiction of golf we could find in movie them <laughs> in picking Happy Gilmore and his hockey stick driver. I still love the movie. It's stupid, it's goofy, but I look forward. And yet, I say this every time we record this thing, it's probably a movie I haven't seen in 10 years. So we'll I haven't see. seen it since the theater. I don't think I've seen it a second time. I saw it in the theater in 96. I don't think I've ever seen it a second time. It did touch my funny bone. And as a golf lover, I watched it periodically through my 20s, but it's probably been 8 to 10 years since I've seen I'm it. I'm not a Sandler time. fan, but I do like a few of his movies. Certainly Punch Drunk Love. And I remember liking this. We'll see if I like it a second time. And same with you. So that's March the 4th in two weeks. All right, so I'm at MovieFiend51 on Twitter. Chris is at Scoring at Movies. The website is www.topofthundredproject.com. So take her easy, dudes. I know that you will. And just like James Earl Jones does when he's about to leave Ray. Like the dealer does, right? Showing he's got no cards. I got no cards, Chris. The podcast is over. Hey, Ryan. You want to have a catch? 
have a catch. What a weird expression. Yeah. Never doesn't... heard of it until this movie. No. It's too cold, but let's go play catch anyway. Yeah, let's play rock band. Better. <laughs>